Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app. Happy Tuesday that feels like a Monday. Isn't that kind of stinky? You get a short week and you kind of got to keep that in the back of your mind. Oh, we got a we got a short week here, but your Tuesday feels like a Monday. And that's where we're sitting here on Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain tonight, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Going to have a lot of guests on to talk about a whole lot of things tonight. And I want to start with the NBA, but I first just want to say that I'm going to talk sports tonight. I'm not going to focus on other things. I think we need a respite from other things, but I do want to say that all of my thoughts are with all of my friends that are Highland Park residents it's right next to where I grew up. And they have been telling me that their days are full of GoFundMes for families whose uh, two-year-old son doesn't have any parents anymore or for a family whose husband was shot in the chest and is now recovering and will have heavy medical bills. Some things sent around with meal plans so people can help families just get dinner on the table while their relatives recover. Um, So yesterday was not a very celebratory day for me. Um, and I don't want to just ignore that that happened and happened so close to home. But I'm going to talk about the NBA, and I'm going to have a lot of guests on, and we're all going to get through this together. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Everybody's talking Kevin Durant still, and there is a sort of delay on where he goes next, not just because he's not in charge. The Nets have full say over where he goes and get to decide what they need to get back in order to make the absolutely terrible reality of losing Kevin Durant with four years left uh, a little bit less painful. I keep hearing the same teams. Most folks think the Raptors make the most sense in terms of a place where he could succeed and where they would get pieces back that would make sense. But I also am hearing the Warriors, which has a whole lot of people talking about whether that would be disastrous or exactly the kind of evil content that we need. The debatable guys today were talking about how they want him to sign with the Warriors again, not because they want to watch it, or because they think that that will make for good parody across the league, but simply to see the content that would result from the cupcake heading back to the bakery. I mean, Charles Barkley alone, the number of sort of started and then unfinished driving the truck analogies that we would get from that. And then Kevin Durant would ultimately be backed over by said truck repeatedly by everyone in the media. I don't want that to happen, even for the content. And I'll tell you this, I was one who did not care that Kevin Durant chose the Warriors last time. While everyone was calling him a cupcake, while everyone was complaining about him taking the easy path, I was okay with it. I would not be okay with it this time. We cannot have a repeat of that. I just, I like the way things are going where that idea that you just get a bunch of superstars, put them together without creating an actual team is the way to go. That has been disproved of late. And I think it's more fun for everybody watching and particularly for folks whose teams are made more organically to believe they've got a shot, that it doesn't have to be whichever place can manage to get three superstars from their disparate places, bring them together and then say, all right, we want it all. I I just, I don't want to go back to that with a Kevin Durant return to the Bay Area. I'm, I'm good on that. I don't know where he's going to end up, to be honest with you. It feels like the Rudy Gobert deal set such a precedent in terms of the haul that you need to get back, not only to feel good about, again, 
losing Kevin Durant, which you're never going to feel good about, but feel a little less bad about, but also to save face. For as much as Joe Sy's talked about the kind of players he wants and can make it feel like if KD isn't bought into a certain style or a certain culture, he's okay with letting him walk. Nobody is. And you got to save face with getting back enough to convince people that the Nets have some sort of future. And it certainly can't be built around Ben Simmons, a product we have no faith in, uh, particularly now that the two pieces that we were told would make him better and would allow him to hide the weaknesses and, and play to the strengths, both will likely be gone. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight. We're going to talk to some NBA experts about KD's likely landing spot, but I also want to talk Kyrie, too. First, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with their easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at ProgressiveCommercial.com. So Jay Williams had this to say about Kyrie being seen as both a problem and a savior this morning on KJ and Max. The same people that I've been saying for the longest that he is the guy burning down franchises. Now you're telling me that he can go out to L.A. and all of a sudden now it's going to work because LeBron James is there. Now look, I think LeBron James and him are extremely compatible. I think they're more compatible than KD and Kyrie because of how you can put them in pick and rolls, because how they can play off each other, because of LeBron is such an incredible facilitator. It allows Kyrie to play off the ball. You know, James Harden was able to do that a lot more with Brooklyn because KD and Kyrie could focus on scoring, whereas LeBron, as a playmaker with AD and with Kyrie, the way they can involve them in pick and rolls, the floor spacing, like, I like the way that looks. I just... Man, that's a lot to bring to the table for LeBron James. That's a lot to manage. It sure is. And I think that there's a lot of people who seem to believe that all of the things that Kyrie has proved over and over again disappear all of a sudden in a new place. And maybe that relationship with LeBron helps. And maybe the fact that without a doubt... There is very secure leadership at the top of the Lakers and secure leadership on the roster with LeBron would make it so that Kyrie couldn't believe that he was in charge the way that he estimated himself to not only be a player, but also the player coach. Remember what he said about Steve Nash, the person in charge of the franchise, like a front office position. He assigned himself a lot of roles with the Nets, none of which he wanted to show up for consistently. So the idea that he just goes to the Lakers and all of the problems are solved because LeBron is like a a father figure. We remember what happened the last time LeBron implied that he was a father figure. Kyrie literally went out and said, I have a father. I don't need that from LeBron. So I think it's rife with the possibility of another implosion, and people think it's a little bit too easy of a fix. I also have been confused a bit by what some folks have been saying about Kyrie lately. Dragonfly Jones and Dan Lebetard, two of those. A little bit later in the show, I'm going to get to some of the things they've said in defense of Kyrie lately that I think are missing some pretty important context. We'll get into that later, but coming up, we'll get a reaction on the U.S. Women's National Team's win over Haiti yesterday. What are the big questions about this team as they prep for the World Cup and we get a look at some of the younger stars? It's coming up next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. A little solo Spain action on a Tuesday. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Going to head out to the phone line where we're joined by Meg Linehan of The Athletic. She's our go-to for all things women's soccer. She's down in Mexico and witnessed the U.S. Women's National Team's opening CONCACAF qualifying match. It was a 3-0 win over Haiti last night. So, Meg, what were you watching for and what did we learn in this first match? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the big discussion coming out of this game and really the message from the players post-game is that the decision-making still isn't fast enough. The problem-solving still needs to get, you know, a little bit faster. They're not necessarily reacting to the game at a speed that they would like. They're not figuring things out before halftime on the field. Obviously, you have Alex Morgan is really one of the big takeaways from an attack point of view, but I think that there were big question marks about the defending in this game. Uh, Haiti broke through with a couple of really big chances. They gave up a penalty kick. So there are a lot of details to be tightened up, but you know, Megan Rapinoe came into the mix zone and just said, hey, jitters, it's a, a first tournament for a lot of these players, and we feel okay about where we're at, but obviously there is still a lot of work to happen. After the game, when Rapino was talking about Alex Morgan, she, you know, she talked about how she's been on a tear scoring-wise in both NWSL and playing for country, but also seemed to make a reference to the U.S. Women's National Team sort of being like the Warriors, who came back to win yeah. it all this year after struggling, but said, you know, to all their doubters, "Don't count us out." Is that the attitude of this team after a disappointing Olympics? I, I think that the mentality of this team is something that is really just an intangible that you can never really overlook, right? I think especially for players like Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan who have lived through the very specific challenge that CONCACAF qualifying presents, right? There is they're not going to be a lot of surprises. And so I think having them as a presence on this team where you are really starting to try to make the shift Flacco Andonofsky is really starting to try to bring in the youth element, but having a couple of these presences that have lived through everything that a CONCACAF tournament is going to throw at you, definitely a good thing. And that was, that was definitely talked about last night too. Meg Linehan from The Athletic is with me here talking about the U.S. Women's National Team's 3-0 win over Haiti in the first of their CONCACAF qualifying. They're getting ready for the World Cup next year, and they have a lot to prove after the disappointing Olympics. And to your point, this is a sort of transition pivot moment for the team where some of the players we're used to seeing are no longer on the squad, and there's some youngsters that we might not know as well. Who should we keep an eye on that might play a big role and might become one of the players we're really talking about at the at the uh, World Cup next year, but maybe people aren't as familiar with now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, maybe not necessarily a youngster the way that we're thinking about, but a player like Andy Sullivan who has stepped into that defensive midfielder role with Julie Arts being away from the team. You know, the, the team really only traveled with one option at that position as a player who naturally plays that position, and so – there has been a lot of narrative around who could potentially fill in as a backup is Andy Sullivan healthy. But when Andy Sullivan is at full strength and ready to go, this is a player that could be really, really crucial, not just in terms of acting as that front line in front of the two center backs, but also setting up play, potentially scoring goals of her own. So if, if people aren't familiar with Andy Sullivan, that is really a name. I think that is going to be very important for this team moving forward over the next year because she is now essentially this team's starting defensive midfielder. Give me another conflict in terms of uh, the folks watching and questioning Vlatko's decision-making. Yeah, I think he is really, you know, there is some real pressure. And and I think there are kind of big questions around the transition overall. I don't think it's ever going to be this perfect, painless, process for a team right like having players age or transition out bringing new players in 
But what I think is kind of the most concerning part is having been covering the team for a while, I think we've been talking about some of the same challenges for a really long time and the answers haven't really come through yet. Like the, the questions about finishing on this team, the questions about decision-making on this team, problem-solving on this team, we've kind of been talking about them for about a year now, really since the Olympics, and we haven't necessarily seen consistent answers around those issues on this team yet. And CONCACAF qualifying, as weird as it is, it should, in theory, be kind of this easier process for the U.S. Women's National Team. So this is kind of the chance to, to get those details right. And game one, there's not an indication that the details are there yet. Meg Linehan of The Athletic with me here on Spain and Fit. Sarah Spain solo tonight. We're talking USA women's opening effort in the CONCACAF qualifying. And it seems like Lindsay Horan is not entirely 100%. Is it the right move to have her out there now? And it uh, seems like a whole lot of people are worried about how she's being used. Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely one of the big talking points after game one. And, and it is interesting because she was obviously coming off of Champions League with Lyon, right? And, and coming in with rest compared to all of these players who have been on the NWSL grind between Challenge Cup and then the regular season starting. So there's not necessarily a lot of clarity. I'm sure this question will be asked in the next press conference with Lako Andonofsky because I don't think Karan is necessarily even the only player that there's maybe a little question of, like, is she 100%? I think there are some other players, too. And, again, most of them are coming off of the the wear and tear of an NWSL season. So it is, I think, a little concerning. But also then the question becomes of Haran is so important to this team right now and does so much of the, the box-to-box work, work of that kind of number eight midfielder is there a player who can really step into that role if she is not at 100% to start? And that's, again, pointing back to the questions of who Vlako Andonofsky has called into this team. Meg Linehan is in Mexico where the U.S. Women's National Team is kicking off CONCACAF qualifying. Since we're talking NWSL, before I let you go, I wish this had been a couple days ago when I could say to you, my Chicago Red Stars are atop (laughs) the table of the NWSL standings, sitting in second right now, but the Wave have played one more match than they have. Talk to me about the couple teams near the top and what you've seen so far in the season. Yeah, I mean, Chicago has been really consistent. I mean, they're unbeaten in eight, right? So I think they have definitely kind of gotten into the, the groove of the season. San Diego has continued to be kind of the Cinderella story of expansion teams where Casey Stoney has really come in and I think, you know, been that coach who has maybe not necessarily gotten 100% of the NWSL off the bat, but done things her way and built a team her way. And we are seeing the results of that. But I also think we can't count out Portland. OL Reign yet. I mean, Portland has been in a really good run of form as of late. And now I think the big question about the NWSL is between CONCACAF W Championship, Euros, AFCON, like we have all of these big tournaments happening in July and teams are going to be without a lot of big players. Who are the teams that are going to benefit through this period where they can like really nick some points and maybe shoot up the standings a little bit? Chicago might be in a really good place to take advantage of this time period just because also they've already been so impacted by injuries that they they're they're already on plan c for 2022 
and doing quite well despite it. That seems like a great place to finish. Chicago is in a really good spot, potentially. I'd love to hear it. Uh, Meg, thanks so much for the insight. Enjoy the time in Mexico and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Meg Linehan, follow her work on The Athletic. She is the best at all of the women's sports coverage. And for those who don't know, I guess I should say I am a co-owner of the Chicago Red Stars, hence my accurate use of the word my and my very clear bias uh, when asking about the standings in the NWSL. It's Spain and Fitz, Solo Spain tonight, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. If you've not been watching either the NWSL or any of the U.S. Women's National Team games, Alex Morgan has been unbelievable, just on an incredible tear, uh, and you're missing out on quite a show. Um, Mallory Pugh of the Red Stars, also leading the way uh, up until last night, at least in goals for country and third in the NWSL. So some really big stars, some really big names uh, putting on a show early on. If you haven't been watching, time to catch up. Speaking of watching and catching up, Max Scherzer making his return for the Mets tonight. So a lot of folks making predictions, bets, and picks based on what he'll look like. Uh, Mets are kind of getting healthy at this point. So the NL East race might change a little as they're getting back some folks who can certainly help out. It was uh, a pretty good sign for this Mets team that while Scherzer has been out, they've gone 25-16. and 16. So without two of their aces, Jacob deGrom as well, uh, they've actually held on pretty well. They'll take on Cincinnati tonight. They'll try to take a... a you know, what should be candy from a baby in the tanking reds, but it's baseball. So you never really know what's going to happen. Uh, Scherzer four and zero with a 33 ERA 0.33, I guess I should say ERA eight walks and 42 strikeouts in his four career starts at great American ballpark. Um, so this seems like a pretty cushy way to get back into things. But like I said, it's baseball, so you just really never know. Uh, but, and it's the Mets. I can't believe I buried the lead. Uh, I, I, I hate to do this to my Mets fan friends, but um, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So um, their success thus far has been a whole lot of fun. We'll see if it's something that they can keep up. Um, I think I heard earlier uh, on this very network some folks giving you basically Yankees, Mets, and Astros or the field. That's how much people have sort of limited the teams that have a real shot at it. I think that's a bit too limited, especially this early. We've seen some particularly dramatic downfalls in the second half from certain squads, and the Mets are certainly not above that kind of action. But I don't want to put the bad juju out there. Happy Max Scherzer Day to those who celebrate. Coming up, we're getting ready for the NFL season with two-a-days next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's a solo Spain night. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain hanging out with you and bringing on my next guest, who not only has achieved fame and fortune on ESPN's many different properties, but also was a uh, member of a cartoon gravestone in a schedule release video for the Cardinals, uh, who have taken a liking to going back and forth with Mina Kimes over a myriad number of things. And Mina, I want to start with how you're doing. Uh, you have uh, your 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 team has lost Russ, and the quarterback situation is looking a little murky. How are you handling this off season? I'm good. I've had a lot of time to process uh, a Drew Locke or Geno Smith-led Seahawks team. You know, it was uh, sort of up in the air for a while as to whether or not they would be obviously drafting a quarterback. They decided to pass on that. So it's kind of 
eyes to next year. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's better to be bad than to be mediocre. This is me coping and rationalizing. <laughs> so uh, I'm feeling pretty good about, uh, about the good team right about now. About being bad, not mediocre. Are mm-hmm. you uh, at all interested in Baker? Because I actually liked the idea of having Baker on the squad in case next year's draft pick isn't ready to go or in case you might damage that draft pick if you go ahead and take someone who's not, uh, you know, going to be in a good situation. I would rather have Baker than Locke. Uh, or Gino, but uh, how do you see that situation? Well, yeah, I, I, it would certainly be a more watchable team. I think, um, you know, that sort of kind of actually goes back to the, the what I was saying jokingly, which is, would you rather be bad or be mediocre? Right. And I think that team would probably be more mediocre. That said, you know, it, there's something to be said for not always trying to optimize your team and either, you know, go for the Super Bowl or bust or, um you know, aim with towards the draft and nothing else. And it is enjoyable to watch a team that actually has a chance at winning games. So <laughs> I think while part of me would feel it's not, it, it's a bit short-sighted, I guess, with regards to the long-term strategy, the other part of me would enjoy watching it a lot more because I think he is actually a pretty good fit for what Shane Waldron, their offensive coordinator, wants to do on offense. A lot of under center play action, marry the pass and the run. And yeah, I think he would actually look pretty decent in it. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the same position of I've, I've already accepted that my team is going to be very bad as long as that very bad leads to something in the future. I'm okay with it, but you know the concerns about the damage that you might do long-term during that stretch is always sort of on the horizon. Mina Kimes with me here on Spain and Fitz. Uh, speaking of bad, I think last year's Bengals turnaround has given a bit too much hope to folks that that's feasible. <laughs> Can you set us straight with some of the things that happened for them besides the obvious of Joe Burrow that allowed them to make that leap and why that is less likely to happen to other teams? You know, I think the thing that was most surprising with Cincinnati um, wasn't uh, Burrow. Obviously, when you have that pick and you get a quarterback there, it's not totally surprising if he's excellent. He did have the best season in college football history, or the best season, pardon me. Or, you know, if you're drafting a wide receiver like Jamar Chase at number six, again, that's not particularly surprising. What was surprising was that they hit on so many of their free agent signings, uh, which that's something that doesn't usually happen with teams to have guys, whether it's a bigger contract like Trey Hendrickson, uh, who they uh, took from New Orleans, the edge rusher, or some of the smaller additions they made, like, I don't know, B.J. Hill or Larry Ogajobi, uh, so many of those additions on the team just worked out really well on defense and offense. And I think that's what's not likely to happen for other teams who have similar aspirations. Hanging over the Bengals has always been the belief that the owners really don't care about winning. Should we put that aside for now, or do we believe that that's, they almost <laughs> succeeded in spite of that? I saw that they like finally built an indoor practice facility or something. I, I might be misrepresenting it. That seems a little unlikely for Cincinnati, Ohio. I think that but, was the Kansas City um, current of the NWSL. Very fancy facility too. Looks nice. Man, well, I guess all it took was you know getting a generational quarterback and nearly going to Super Bowl for your owners to invest. But hey, good for them. Yeah, I guess that we'll have to. Jury's still out on that narrative, as they say. Uh, Mina Kimes with me here. We're doing two a days here at ESPN Radio, and we're starting from the bottom of the barrel, quite literally, with the teams that were the furthest away from the success that the Bengals had, and that's the Jags and the Lions. I would never purport that either team was in a position to have a turnaround like Cincinnati, but let's start with the Jags. What do you look at with this team that tells you that they have a chance to not be the worst in the league this year? 
Well, I think there's, there's a few things, one of which is um, going back and watching Trevor Lawrence to prepare for the upcoming season, you really see um, what a terrible situation he was in, just the offense, um, the play calling, the talent around him. And I think that as a Jags fan, it's got to be comforting because, you know, on tape, he still makes some of those incredible throws you saw in college. He's a real playmaker with his feet as well, um, not – panicky and I think you know combining that with having a a coach in Doug Peterson who's not only I don't know competent but also very talented (laughs) at uh, developing young quarterbacks and calling plays I think you got to feel hopeful for that combination of head coach and quarterback going into the season. It would be almost impossible for Trevor Lawrence not to take a step forward because of the combination of more time and Doug Peterson instead of Urban Meyer but the questions remain higher up. And, you know, Balky is sort of, I think I heard Canty say today, he has Jack Easterby vibes, which is not a good thing. What do you make of how the yeah. team's culture and what trickles down from the front office and the kind of people who believed that Urban Meyer was the right move at one point? Mm. How does that affect this team's ability to move forward? Well, you know, I think there's still, I, Jags fans have made no secret of the fact that they do not love Trent Balky. Um uh, yeah, you you may have seen the the, the clown masks and um, very unhappy. So uh, I think that they're sort of still rightfully suspicious, even after an off season in which this team spent so much money in acquiring talent uh, to surround Trevor Lawrence with and making additions in the draft. And I think while they're inevitably going to be better because of the additions they've made, there's still questions as to whether they made the right additions. I mean, for example, the infamous Christian Kirk contract, um, you know, giving the wide receiver out of Arizona as much money as they did raise some eyebrows, even though I, I think it's actually quite good. Um, but that is, you know, that you suddenly have a bit of a, uh, a jam in the slot there. And then even drafting Trevon Walker with the number one overall pick, which was not a, which was a bit of a controversial decision. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those things where um, this is a team that really, did a makeover or, or attempted a makeover this off season. And I think some of that Bucky is certainly deserved. And we're going to have to see how all those picks and signings work out before we change our mind. Talking to Mina Kimes, you can see her on NFL live around the horn, her podcast, the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny, her dog. Uh, let's talk about the lions. I think, unfortunately my bears will give them a boost in that they might be an easy out every time they meet. Uh, and I, for as much as I thought Dan Campbell's hyperbolic introductions were absurd and were not a direct line to success in any meaningful way, other interviews I've seen with him and other conversations I've had with people about him do imply a bit of confidence in his ability to turn things around. Do you believe that? Or, or is this another coach we're going to see through the revolving door out in the next year or so? I think he's got a pretty good shot of sticking around for a couple of reasons. One of which is his team clearly believes in them. I mean, him, pardon me. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to describe a um, bad team as playing hard, but they did play hard. I mean, it really showed up week after week, even when they were outmanned talent wise. And I think it is a testament to sort of a a reversal uh, in culture there after Matt Patricia, where there was so much tension between him and the players, you know, reportedly. And then the other thing is this roster, um, 
it continues to improve year after year. And I think improve the right way, which is in the trenches. Uh, it has one of the better offensive lines in football. The defensive line adds Aiden Hutchinson and some talent throughout. Um, and even if Jared Goff doesn't play better than he has in recent years, I think the, you know, these, those, the moves that they've made, the draft picks, the signings, guys like DJ Chark, for example, uh, so adding to like a, suddenly underrated group of skill players you feel like they're moving in the right direction and setting up for the next quarterback and all they have to do is win more games not make a playoff run yeah i mean the the barrier is pretty low for improvement uh this is a team that was 25th in scoring last year and 31st in points allowed i think there's more confidence in the defense though than the offense in being able to change those numbers how do you expect Goff to fare with another year in the system well, I think he's going to play better um, just because the talent around him is better. Um, you know, I mentioned Chark, but um, you have guys like Eamon Ross St. Brown who broke out in a huge way last year uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, combined with him and assuming Jameson Williams from Alabama plays at some point, suddenly Goff has quite an assortment of weapons that's, I wouldn't say necessarily comparable to what he had in L.A. all the time, but certainly a group that, any quarterback would be thrilled to have, especially playing behind that offensive line next to a good young running back and DeAndre Swift with T.J. Hawkinson in the mix as well. And he's always been a quarterback who really kind of sinks or swims based on what's around him. Mm. So one would think that if everything around him is closer to perfect, um, he'd be more likely to, you know, uh, swim. And I think, uh, I think, I, I don't think he's going to be one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL, but I do think that they're going to look like a more competent offense. All right, last question for you, Mina Kimes, and you can listen to her Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny and Tira on NFL Live and around the horn and all sorts of other places. What's one story we're not talking about enough this offseason that you're finding particularly compelling? Hmm, football-wise, let me think. Yeah, um, well, I, <laughs> there's a lot of other Jimmy stuff. Garopp- <laughs> I know. I, I think really the Jimmy Garoppolo thing is kind of floating yeah. under the radar because he hasn't been mentioned as a – you know, because he was hurt, he wasn't really being rumored as a trade target. But, you know, one would think that a certain t- caliber of quarterback, even if they were hurt, would probably draw some interest. I and mean, we are talking about an offseason in which Carson Wentz was traded yet again for relatively high draft mm-hmm. picks. Um, and I know the Niners, too, you know, seem to be in no hurry to move him and are willing to kind of wait it out and see if injuries or other opportunities open up. But it doesn't seem totally impossible that he won't be on that roster this year. And that's going to be a bit of an awkward situation with Trey Lance. There are so many cringe situations in the NFL right now. We'll see if they get figured out before the season or if we'll march confidently into the season with a bunch of super awkward quarterback situations. Mina, thanks so much for the time. Always appreciate it. Thanks. Bye, Sarah. Mina Kimes, ESPN NFL analyst with me here on Spain and Fitz. Coming up, we'll do a little more talking about those Jags and Lions. Who will end up with a better record? Who has more pieces to improve? It's next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Gosh, you hear that and you think how far we've come since the very unceremonious, or I guess ceremonious, if you if you think of it as sort of dramatic and full of stories, finish for Doug Peterson with the Eagles. And now the word is no drama, no nothing. Everybody's feeling good. Will that last for the Jags? Certainly an upgrade and would be nearly impossible to go downhill from where they were with Urban Meyer last season. 
But is Doug Peterson the answer for a team that's got a great quarterback and needs to not waste him? It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, solo tonight, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're doing these two-a-days where we take two teams every day moving forward as we get to camps. And the Jags and Lions have the uh, undesirable uh, spot of the very, very bottom after last season, which means a lot of questions to be answered. The obvious one is Trevor Lawrence. Can he take a big step forward? Is it enough to be with what we've deemed a quarterback friendly and successful NFL coach in Doug Peterson? Um, well, the weapons around him certainly will help. Uh, they added a Pro Bowl caliber player at the offensive line in Brandon Scherf. Um, that's certainly going to help him. He goes along with a, a, a line led by Cam Robinson and Juwan Taylor. You know, you always are looking for that with young quarterbacks. That makes it so much easier. Um, yeah, it seems like it'd be pretty difficult for Trevor Lawrence not to take a step forward. And Anthony Schlegel, former Jag strength and conditioning coach, was on with Jay, uh, uh, Keyshawn J. Will and Max this morning and talked about how he's in a good position because he's a guy who likes to be coached and he thinks Doug Peterson's a good fit for that. I just know the dude's in the building all the time, and I think that somebody that can, can under teach him the why, mm, he's more yeah. apt mm-hmm. to digest it. Right? And again, this is also malicious. Guys, when we all played, what was it? Hey, man, you got the A gap. If this guy comes to this gap, mm-hmm. you smash his face. Yes, coach. Right? There's no why. There wasn't a why. We just did. Right. I think now it's more of the why in the scheme to give me a better understanding as to what we are doing because the quarterback is now taking on so many more things at the line of scrimmage. That's, how, that's what he wants, and that's how you have to teach him, along with being accountable and having a high standard. Mm-hmm. But he embraces that and wants it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of great things about Trevor Lawrence that should make you hopeful. Um, you know, you've also got Travis Etienne coming back. You've got, um, you know, an improvement of, of the weapons around him, a decent receiving core, not great, but decent. Um, but at the top, you've still got so many questions about construction of the team and culture. Again, this is a team that believed in Urban Meyer and took too long deciding that that was a wrong move and has seemed to do that repeatedly. So a lot of questions about leadership. In fact, as I mentioned to Mina Kimes in the last segment, Chris Canty was on, uh, was uh, filling in today with Carlin uh, in Greeny's time slot and said, as long as Trent Balky's still in charge, that could be the problem that can't be fixed. The only question that I have about the Jacksonville Jaguars in terms of the culture that they're trying to create is what's going on in the front office because they still got Trent Baalke around there, Carlin. And yeah. here's the thing. I like some of the decisions that they made this offseason, but it's like when you're trying to show your work to get partial credit, like when you don't show your work it just or you don't find the right way to get to the answer that you came to, that has to give you a little cause for pause. And that's where I'm at with that front office for Jacksonville because if you remember, Jacksonville was interested in hiring Byron Leftwich. That ended up falling through. He didn't become their head coach, and a big part of it was because he didn't feel comfortable with Trent Baalke being the one that was responsible for the final 53. They also flirted with hiring Adrian Wilson to be their general manager and moving Baalke in a different role. That didn't pan out. And so Trent Baalke being this figure that's looming over the Jacksonville Jaguars, I just it doesn't make me feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean, there's still a ton of questions. Um, and how he influences who wants to come there, play their work there, still yet to be seen. Uh, in 2021, they overpaid for a bunch of role players. Um, they didn't go out and get the best of the best. 
at offensive skill positions, uh, which would have been a big help to Trevor Lawrence. Uh, three of the non-Lawrence top 33 picks from Balky have been used on defense. Um, so uh, are they going to focus enough to get the best out of the best person on their team? Uh, they were, uh, you know, they will benefit from their strength of schedule. It's 26th and, of course, from being in the AFC South. But still some question marks for the Jags. I do think they'll be better, but tough not to be, right? And so I'll, I'll put that up on social at Sarah Spain. Uh, regular season record. I'll give you a couple options for your estimations for the Jags. Uh, the other team today is the Lions. As I talked to Mina about, I mean, they're going to get a boost in a Bears team that I think is going to be basically not trying, which gives me serious concerns around what that means for Justin Fields. Um, but I think the Lions do get another year under Dan Campbell. Uh, real ugly last year, 3-13-1. They didn't win a game until week 13 as I said, 25th in scoring, 31st in points allowed. Uh, this is a team that has just got a lot of questions to be answered. Uh, the good news for them, I guess, is if Goff is a total loss, there are quarterbacks to be had in the draft next year, and they have a contract out with Goff next year. They would have to eat a bunch of dead cap money, but they could get out from him if they think it's not going to work. And they spent a lot of time last year talking about culture getting guys to work hard. It did not show up in the win-loss records, but people were impressed by how hard they played and maybe impressed by Dan Campbell, depending on who you talk to. There are others who have him ranked pretty low in their ranking of head coaches, and they need to see a whole lot more in terms of wins and not just talking for them to believe that he's the man that will finally get the Lions out of their hole. So we'll ask you on social media their wins as well. Which team is going to have a better record? How long will Dan Campbell stick around for the uh, for the Detroit Lions? Uh, lots of questions about those teams. We'll pay those off later. Coming up, should the Lakers want to get Kyrie Irving? And what's happening with the Clippers? It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz on a Tuesday. Solo Spain, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain hanging out with you. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle motorcycle, RV, and boat insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Happy to welcome in my sometime around the horn nemesis and also NBA expert, George Sedano. Hey, let's talk about all the conversation around Kyrie and the Lakers. Uh, do you think that that's anything to do with Jeannie Buss's tweet? Do you think that that's a shot at Westbrook or LeBron or what's going through her head? <laughs> so <clears throat> I think there's a lot of things at play there. Now, all of this is just us reading tea leaves. So I want to make sure I say that up front. But I, I do think that, Sarah, it has a lot to do with a lot of those people that you mentioned. Now, if I had to guess, uh, I would imagine there's some frustration there because the net deal hasn't gotten done. Uh, Jeannie is somewhat active on social media, so she sees the commentary. And let's just say it's not very nice. <laughs> and by the way, this was even before the Kyrie situation, just based right. on the way the season has gone, she's taken a lot of criticism on social media. So I think there's some frustration there. I think there's some frustration because the deal hasn't gotten done because the Nets, and again, this is just to my knowledge, don't seem all that interested in Russell Westbrook. And I do think that there's perhaps a subtweet to LeBron in some ways because LeBron can sign an extension in less than a month and hasn't done so, or at least hasn't, you know, reporting says that he's going to wait to see what free agency is going to do, is going to happen, and how that's going to turn out. 
So I think that there's a lot of frustration there by Jeannie from a lot of different sources. Let's talk about the potential of a Kyrie-LeBron reunion. There are some that believe LeBron has the strength and the relationship with him to make him an asset that can be more consistent. And there are others throwing up their hands and saying it didn't work where he wanted to be with the guys he hand-selected and the coach he picked. Why do you believe he could go to a, what looks like a very troubled place and lacking the right pieces team when the Lakers and things will work out better? Where do you land? I land that it'll work out better with LeBron because I also think Kyrie is astute enough to realize, hey, the market is pretty dry for him right now. And it's really only the Lakers. So I think at some point you have to kind of look around and say, oh, okay, this is where we're at. And I think Kyrie did something really smart a couple of years ago when he reached out to LeBron and he talked about this in the media and basically said, hey, man, I'm sorry for all the dumb things I did when I was with you as a kid. And, look, we, I, you can extrapolate jokes out of there, Sarah. I know you're waiting to do so and waiting to pounce at any given moment. But it is something that Kyrie realized, oh, yeah, you know what? That thing I had in Cleveland worked really well. So I think all those things put together, I, I think, create a better situation for Kyrie in L.A. It's not all on him, Right. He believes he believed in his heart of hearts that he can make that thing in Brooklyn work because he was going to have a say in how it went down. And then he realized very quickly, oh, yeah, not only do I not have a say, but they don't even want me around anymore, it seems like, at least not under my terms. So I think if that's the case, Kyrie is no dummy. He's going to look at LeBron and be like, all right, bro, it's you and me again because I may not have many other options. Kind of can see part of that. I'm talking to George Sedano. I also think there's a lot of assumptions in there that presume that Kyrie will behave like the average person when humbled and or shown that his way is not always the right way. And I don't know that that's the case, seeing as until this recent blow up of the Nets, he said, I can't wait to be back. We're going to be a part of, you know, running this team, acting as though he still was in charge of things beyond just playing, which was a struggle enough for him. So I don't know if it's as simple as just if LeBron's in charge, things work out, but it might be the only option for both the Lakers and Kyrie to to move forward. I want to talk quickly about the Clippers because they're in your town as well. This is a sort of Island of Misfit Toys situation where if somehow everyone remains healthy, I think they could be really good. I'm just not sure how you can depend on any of the three stars they now have to be consistently available. How do you see it? Okay, real quick, just to tag on to the Lakers thing, because I I thought you made a great point there at the end, where the Lakers are in this situation because they also don't have alternatives. So this would be a a marriage of convenience. There's no no question uh, uh, in that regard. Okay, now on the Clippers, here's what I know. I've been told Kawhi Leonard in his workouts last season, towards the end of the year, remember there were some rumors about, well, maybe Kawhi can join Uh, the team before the playoffs or during the playoffs or whatnot. Well, that eventually got squashed, but it was basically because Kawhi looked so good in those workouts. And I think that given the fact that he's had, God, I mean, well over a year now, and by the time the season starts, nearly 18 months or somewhere in that range to get his body right again, that I think you can depend on Kawhi. Now, look, three things can happen, et cetera, et cetera. The Paul George stuff, remember, Paul George would have been available. He was back, you know, and healthy, ready to play 
and then got COVID during that play-in game against the Minnesota T-Wolves. So that put him out the door in that particular situation. So I I feel fairly confident about those two guys. And here's the thing, Sarah. If I were picking a favorite going into next year, it probably would still be the Warriors, but right there with them would be the Clippers because Mm. they remind me a lot of the Warriors from the previous season where – Steph came back for most of the games. Draymond was there for most of the games. But they did a really good job of developing the role players on that team. And I think Ty Lue did that this year. I think that Ty Lue did a fantastic job considering he was playing a bunch of role players and a bunch of kids pretty much the entire season and went 42-40. and 40. I'm a big Ty Lue guy. I think that, you know, I can go on and on forever about why I think he's one of the better coaches in the league. He's in my top five. But I think because of what they've done there – building up those young guys because they have those veterans and they bring back guys like Nick Batum, Marcus Morris Sr., Reggie Jackson. They added Norman Powell, who we barely saw last year, who's a fantastic player, and they re-signed Robert Covington. I think they're arguably the deepest team in the league going into next season. It's a great analogy to the Warriors. You're just missing that one thing, which is that the Warriors don't have a curse. And so we do have to get (laughs) past that part of the Clippers in order to see the success that the talent should be delivering them. (laughs) The Clipper curse originally was couldn't get past the second round. They did make it to the conference finals. So baby steps here. (laughs) New curse, new curse. Uh, We're talking to George Sedano here on Spain and Fitz, solo Spain on ESPN radio. Uh, Quickly, last couple. What's the next move for the Jazz? Do they build around Mitchell or is this all part of a larger blowing up of that team? I would venture to guess that this is them starting the rebuild. So I would say that Donovan Mitchell is probably going to be out there on the market soon. I would imagine he will also have a number of teams he'd like to play for. And, you know, Danny Ainge will do what he can do uh, to try to extract the best haul from those teams. I will say this. I think that the Minnesota Timberwolves and what Danny Ainge got from them, granted, a bunch of role players for the most part, but those four picks – that thing is kind of, that thing that deal has screwed up the entire process right. with Durant and right. Kyrie and Mitchell Agreed. because while I, I get what Minnesota was doing, I almost feel like they gave up too much in that deal. It's a credit to Danny yes. Ainge and the Chaz, but yep. yeah, I, I think that's kind of messed up the whole thing and what we're seeing here. Why we have such a stalemate in the off season, but I do think they're they're eventually going to move off Mitchell. Someone's just going to trade a whole team. The entire Kings franchise will be traded for Kevin Durant. He won't have anyone to play for because when he gets there, the franchise will be gone, but that'll be the move. Hey, Georgia, now you got to run. Thanks so much for the time. You got it. Take care, Sarah. Yeah, what a conundrum. I mean, truly, however much you give up for Kevin Durant will not be enough, and yet already it feels like after the Gobert deal, whatever you give up will be so much. Uh, we're still waiting Waiting on where Kevin Durant ends up. It's Spain and Fitz. Thanks to George Sedano for that great insight. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Coming up, we'll tackle a whole bunch of stuff that we can only get to the way we do around here, which is quickies. Next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain solo tonight with you. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. You know how we do it around here. When we got a busy day and lots to get to, we get to some of the stories across the sports world quickly in quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Now, even though my cohort on this very program, Jason Fitz, works the sidelines of the 
Fourth of July, uh, Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest. I'm still not one to tune in uh, for a number of reasons. I don't like to see reversals of fortune. I'm a vegetarian and I hate to see all those dogs sort of wasted in the name of quote unquote sport. Uh, but this year, uh, not only was it the usual uh, shoveling of dogs, there was a bad beat for those who put money down on Joey Chestnut. Now he won. That wasn't the problem. But he was in the midst of eating. He was mid-17th hot dog when a protester interrupted the event. Joey Chestnut paused briefly to put the protester in a chokehold. The MC helped him get the protester to the ground. He was removed, and Joey Chestnut got back into action, but might have lost a couple dogs in the process. So he won 63 dogs. Was a 15 and a half dog win over the second place finisher, but he was short of the over under of 74 and a half. And here's the thing he would not have gotten that many dogs down even if the protester hadn't arrived. But because there's no way of saying for certain how many dogs the protester affected, certain sports books are issuing refunds. FanDuel called theirs a bad beat refund. DraftKings credited, quote, the disruption for their decision. So a crutched chestnut who had a torn tendon and apparently was a little bit hobbled in his eating because of his inability to stand on both legs without pain, uh, ends up not disappointing anyone. So I guess thanks to the protester if you had the over on that one. Next story. Quickies. Uh, we're keeping eyes on Wimbledon, even though most of my favorites and the folks that I most wanted to see advance did not. There are some interesting storylines coming out nonetheless, and Nick Kyrgios is always providing those. The question of whether that's good for tennis because of the publicity or bad is still up in the air, but he won to make the last eight at the All England and had a $10,000 fine for spitting in the direction of a spectator who heckled him during the first round, a $4,000 fine for swearing during Saturday's game, and he's likely to get a third punishment because he broke the strict dress code at Wimbledon wearing his Jordans and a hat. Here was the exchange with a member of the press about that outfit that he wore. Um, we all know the Wimbledon dress code rules are very strict. Mm. Um, competitors must be dressed in suitable tennis attire that's almost entirely white, mm. and this applies from the point at which the player enters the courts around. Yep. Why then would you walk onto centre court with bright red trainers on and do an interview in a red cap? Um. Because I do what I want. So you're above the rules? No. I'm not above the rules. So what is it? That you, they don't apply to you? Well, um, I just like wearing my Jordans. But there are rules specifically against that. The referee, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but the referees are going to be speaking to you about it. That's okay. Afterwards, and that's okay. I'll wear some triple whites tomorrow. But that's fine then. So everyone else, the other, everyone else in both drawers, but no one else, even 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 after Wimbledon, like no one else really walks with Jordans on the court. Okay, Matt, sorry, we're gonna. But sorry, no, I'm just sorry to say, Nick's just moaned about the controversy that surrounds him. I haven't moaned. I love well, it. Well, you've laughed it off, so, so that's all part of it, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah, more attention for me. What's that saying? Any publicity is good publicity, right? If you say so. Okay. Keep doing you then, champion. Oh, just dripping with condescension. I, my favorite part is the 
uh, the reporter saying, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but the rules officials will be speaking to you. Uh, also, anytime someone says controversy, which is an infinitely better pronunciation of that word than the one that we have. Worth noting, by the way, that as Kyrgios continues to claim that all publicity is good publicity, he is set to be in court next month after allegedly assaulting his former girlfriend. So, domestic violence charges and accusations a part of the publicity that comes with Nick Kyrgios. And... I think those who would say, oh, this guy is someone to root for, he likes Jordans, might want to do a little more digging into exactly the kind of person and the lengthy list of fines and egregious behavior that he's exhibited before you decide you're on board just because he likes Jays. All right, next story. Quickies. A lot of really great news coming out of the hockey world of late, a culture in hockey that is desperately in need of some updating and desperately in need of evolution and that may come in the form of some of the great hires going on the toronto maple leafs have promoted hockey hall of famer and four-time olympic gold medalist dr Haley wickenheiser to assistant gm one of the most decorated women's players of all time and she's now going to be working in player development uh she joined the leafs back in 2018 was uh promoted to senior director of player development in 2021 and then now is the assistant general manager part of a real wave of women that have been hired we've seen it across a number of different teams uh and you do like to see it uh you do hope that that will help hockey is such a great sport and a lot of the players are really great dudes unfortunately there is also a very very troubling undercurrent of sexual abuse and terrible toxic culture especially at the youth levels and you would hope uh that diversity across the ranks at every level might help with that. Speaking of diversity in hockey, Mike Greer, uh, hired by the Sharks as the first black GM in NHL history. Yes, you heard that right. In the year 2022, the first black GM in NHL history. Mike Greer, the brother of Dolphins GM, Chris Greer. So that is a proud set of parents. That's to be sure. Um, and now you will see the San Jose Sharks with Mike Greer as their GM. So some positive developments across that former player uh, Mike Greer is, and you hope to see uh, that continue and that make some changes across that sport. All right, next story. Quickies. Uh, didn't mention this last week. I think it might have been announced shortly after our show, or maybe we forgot to slide it in, but I did want to mention that among the Presidential Medal of Freedom recipients coming up this week in a ceremony, sports stars Megan Rapino and Simone Biles will receive it. They'll be alongside 15 others uh, who have, quote, overcome significant obstacles to achieve impressive accomplishments in the arts and sciences, dedicated their lives to advocating for the most vulnerable among us, and acted with bravery to drive change in their communities and across the world while blazing trails for generations to come. Two days from now in Washington, D.C., at the White House, that will be that historic moment. Uh, Rapino and Biles, just the fifth and sixth female athletes to ever get the honor. Billie Jean King, Pat Summit. Annika Sorenstam and Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias are the only before them. And there's always opportunity to quibble about the people around them that might have inspired some of this. Certainly Simone Biles is one of many great gymnasts to speak out against Larry Nasser, And of course, she's played an incredible role in discussions around mental health. Um, but there are plenty of other women around her that have played a really important role in affecting change in the gymnastics community. And Rapino herself spoke to Colin Kaepernick, the women who founded Black Lives Matter, Billie Jean, the Williams sisters, so many other folks. In fact, immediately upon announcing her joy and gratitude in, in the honor, she thanked 
tons of people that she believe are as deserving. And um, I think there's always uh, going to be conversations around who gets what. But I thought she handled it really, really well. All right. Final story. Quickies. We've talked a lot about the Brittany Griner case on this show. TJ Quinn continues to do excellent work, so please read his work, follow his work for the details on it. But worth mentioning that Brittany Griner sent a letter to President Biden at the White House, and as much as she said, you know, there's plenty that you have to do, I just want to tell you how scared I am and, and my concerns that I might be here forever. It was a really tough read, and I think continued conversation and support of Brittany Griner making that a top story every day is still necessary to try to get her home. Coming up, winners and losers from the early portion of NBA free agency. My dog's going to chime in. It's coming up next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. On Friday, we spent a lot of the show reacting to the Rudy Gobert trade, going to the T-Wolves, what it's going to look like with two bigs like that and what it means for the Jazz team that now inherited a whole bunch of stuff from Minnesota. We'll get into that and other NBA free agency with our next guest. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain with you solo tonight. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Joining me now, Washington Post NBA writer Ben Golliver. Ben, thanks for the time, and let's start with the T-Wolves. I've heard a lot of protestations at how much they gave up for Gobert. I've heard a lot of concern about what it looks like in the postseason, especially because of Gobert's usage in the postseason and how he became somehow a bit of a defensive liability in these playoffs. But also I've heard people say they're a little bit excited to see someone just try something different and not you know, decide that the only way to play is five across shooting threes. How do you see this deal? Well, I think, look, if you're a Minnesota Timberwolves fan, you want something to be excited about because you've been pretty much terrible for your almost the entire franchise's existence, right? So the idea of swinging big is really appealing, and it's also a good sign from their new ownership group that those guys are committed. They're willing to, you know, take a risk and potentially take on some major uh, financial contract for Gobert to try to put your team into a position where they can win some playoff series kind of consistently year after year and build something special around Anthony Edwards. I just don't think that this was the swing to make. You were listing off some of the concerns. I basically share all of them. I mean, number one fit issue between Towns and Gobert, both those guys are going to be having contracts, paying them like 40 plus million dollars a year. That's basically unheard of to have two players like that in the modern NBA, uh, taking up such a big part of your salary cap space when you have no idea if they can play together, especially in the playoffs. You know, you look at it, uh, Gobert is obviously going to raise your floor defensively and turn you into a much better defensive team. Uh, but he's had some issues staying on the court against high-level teams in the playoffs where if they spread you out, you know, he just doesn't have uh, the ability to play his drop style and just hang out in the paint. And so that becomes a little bit of a liability. Towns defensively as well has really struggled to find a position in the playoffs. And so now he's going to have to play power forward run around chasing all these shooters uh, against small ball lineups, I don't think that's going to work out very well for them. There's also a clear clash in style of play. Minnesota was the number one pace team last year, the fastest team out there. I mean, just getting up and down, really scoring a lot of points. Utah was 23rd. They're, they're typically a, more of a half-court team with Gobert. So something's going to have to give there. You can't ask Rudy Gobert to play this uh, up-tempo style. It's never been how he's had success. But at the same time, you don't want to slow down and take away from what makes a player like Anthony Edwards, an incredible athlete, so special. So I'm just not sure how they're going to resolve these things, especially in the postseason. And maybe, look, if your goal is to win some series and have some fun, 
this trade could accomplish that. If your goal is to win a title or to be a real, true, serious threat, and that's why you're investing all this money and all these draft picks and all these players in the package going back, I think you're going to be left uh, you know, upset and feel like you didn't get uh, full value there. Yeah, and I think when you look at uh, the T-Wolves, they can maybe get away with it not going perfectly if it just improves them a little because of the incredible playoff drought and the lack of success of late. I think the Jazz are in a different position. They've been close, and it's been, why can't we get further with the talent that we have? So they finally give up on the Mitchell-Gobert marriage. Now what's next? Is it build around Mitchell? Is it get rid of him too and use all those picks from the T-Wolves to start young and fresh? How do you see that going? Well, I think part of the reason why you trade Rudy Gobert is because he's on a really big dollar contract. You've hit the wall in the postseason. You've gone as far as you can go with him. And he's 30 years old, and there's some real potential for him to uh, you know, continue to slide a little bit. I actually thought he was less effective last season than the previous season, which I thought was his best year. And so I, I hope that that wasn't related to age, but it certainly could be. Typically, centers are going to give you their best years in their mid to late 20s, and then they're going to kind of lose effectiveness after 30. And that could be a slide that Minnesota now has to deal with. One more reason why I didn't love the deal for them. But I think if you're the Utah Jazz, it's the right time to pull the plug on a group that wasn't, uh, you know, it had gone as far as they could. I would pursue Donovan Mitchell trades if I were them. I would rip this thing to the studs, accumulate even more draft picks, and then just try to play the tank game next season and try to grab uh, Victor Wembenyaya if you can get the number one pick, the, the French phenom. It'd be a perfect guy to kind of retool around as you're going forward. But, uh, you know, I think when you're looking at their roster, they're clearly in between, you know, where they were in terms of being one of the league's best teams two years ago and where they're headed, which I think is going to be a lottery team no matter what uh, next season. You've got some aging players in, in Mike Conley and uh, Bogdanovich who could potentially try to trade. Um, I, I would just try to tear this thing down as much as possible, continue to get as many picks as you can. You know, they made that trade with Royce O'Neal going to Brooklyn to grab a first-round pick. To me, that was smart. You know, he did not play with very much effort in the playoffs. He did not seem engaged. Uh, he's kind of a defensive specialist, but he wasn't really locked in during the postseason. And you can say that for a lot of their players. That's why I think a garage sale is the, the right thing to do. And I think Danny Ainge is off to a really good start with that trade uh, involving Rudy Gobert. Well, and with the Utah Jazz, you know that they do usually have to be organically built because not a lot of big-name free agents are choosing to go there. So with all those young, talented folks and picks that they can grab, maybe they get someone uh, that they can make stick. I'm talking to Ben Golliver of the Washington Post here on Spain and Fitz Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Where's KD going? Do you have any idea? Because to me, it feels like there's people talking about the most likely, but they're not the same place as KD said he wants to go. And the question is how... How much are the Nets willing to risk him telling a team I'm not going to play for you? Or, or how much uh, are they willing to not get back and, and return what they need for four years of Kevin Durant? Well, I, you know, from Brooklyn's perspective, they had the worst Thursday you could imagine, right? Where, like, free agency is about to open and you get this public trade request from one of the NBA's biggest stars just kind of lands in your lap and you're like, oh, no, here we go. You know, everything we've been trying to do for these last couple of years is about to get blown up. I thought they had a great Friday, though. When you start to see some of these trades come in and DeJounte Murray's getting you three first-round picks and Rudy Gobert's getting you four first-round picks, if you're the Nets and you're in a situation where you feel like you have to trade Kevin Durant because it's not uh, salvageable any longer, that price went up so high, didn't it? I mean, Kevin Durant's a much more accomplished, a much more effective player 
than Rudy Gobert is. And so if that's getting you four first-round picks, man, you're going to get an incredible mm-hmm. package for Kevin Durant if you do trade him. Now, I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, KD's destinations, you know, reportedly Phoenix and Miami. They're going to struggle to kind of put together that major, major package for him. Whereas, say, other teams like Toronto, they've got all sorts of young players, rising players, and a bunch of draft picks you can kind of put together in a deal. I think the key takeaway here is for Brooklyn, why do you have to rush this thing? If you've got the most attractive asset, you know, kind of left available on the market, there are no no other big-name free agents really out there. You know, DeAndre Ayton does have to sign with Phoenix, but otherwise, you know, everybody else, whether it's Zach Levine, Bradley B, all these other guys have re-signed. You've got the best chip available. No other major superstars have kind of asked out yet. I think the longer you wait, probably the better offers you're getting and the more pressure Kevin Durant's going to feel to, hey, I want to find a, you know, a different home, and the more pressure other teams are going to feel to kind of put up more draft picks or more assets in their deals. So I can understand Brooklyn wanting to take the patient approach. And I think if you go back and look at some of their other decisions, they haven't always done that, right? I mean, the, the Kyrie Irving uh, situation last year with his vaccination, I mean, they send him home and then they kind of panic and they undo and they, they bring him back to the team. And there's been some other movements where they've just kind of rushed into things. And I wonder if, if this is the one where they're going to say, hey, let's slam on the brakes. Let's make sure we get this right, because this trade is going to set our future for the next four or five years. Yeah, and it does feel like the rest of the NBA will sit and wait. That's the only thing is how long will other teams wait and will this end up being a situation? I think it's probably a little too late already uh, for it to be quite like the LeBron summer where teams stripped their rosters down (laughs) to one player and then tried to figure out what to do when LeBron went elsewhere. But certainly a pause button has been hit while teams figure out exactly what KD and the Nets are thinking. Uh, Before I let you go, Ben, and we're talking to Ben Golliver of the Washington Post here on Spain and Fitz, What's a team that you still think might be making a pretty dramatic move and hasn't done it yet? Well, I think the the biggest unresolved question is with the Suns, right? And I think part of the reason why Aiton hasn't re-signed with them or anywhere else is because he's a very obvious piece to get thrown into a Durant trade, whether it's straight to Brooklyn or like a three-team or a four-team trade where he gets kind of rerouted elsewhere. I understand why Kevin Durant would want to go to the Phoenix Suns. I actually think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, first of all, He's got USA basketball ties with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. He'd be joining a team that's ready to compete for titles now. That's very important for him at age 34. He actually shares Maryland ties with Monty Williams, their coach, and those guys are just kind of similar personalities. I think that would make a lot of sense with their group as well. And, you know, you've got some young pieces that can go back and trade, whether it's Mikhail Bridges or DeAndre Ayton, that I think a lot of teams would value highly. I think the last aspect of this that's maybe not getting talked about enough is that James Jones, Phoenix's uh, front office executive, has said he does not really care about draft picks. He's not interested in building his team through the draft. He wants veterans. If he does draft people, he wants guys who are upperclassmen and ready to compete right now. That, to me, sounds great if I'm Brooklyn. It's like, okay, you don't care about picks. Give me your next you know, 10 years' worth of first-round picks. Give me a whole bunch of pick swaps, no protections, and, and let's go ahead and sweeten this deal up that way. I feel like that's the most natural partnership uh, you know, be, uh, for a trade between Brooklyn and Phoenix. And to me, it would kind of make sense. It'd be a win-win-win for everybody, right? Brooklyn would get to restock all those picks they lost to Houston in the James Harden trade. And they'd probably get some nice young players to kind of remain competitive. Kevin Durant would get to play for a contender. And Phoenix would get, you know, the biggest prize of the summer and an opportunity to, to have a great rivalry, uh, you know, between them and the, the Golden State Warriors. I mean, imagine that, you know, Steph versus Chris Paul. Kevin Durant versus his previous team. I mean, that that story writes itself 
would be an incredible Western Conference Finals. I'm ready to watch that right now. Yeah, I guess KD would become the Matthew Stafford of the NBA's Les Snead, <laughs> and uh, we see if that works in basketball as well. F your picks. Let me just go out and get my superstar. <laughs> uh, ben, thanks for the insight. Really appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. Ben Golliver, Washington Post NBA writer with me here on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz brought to you by Liberty Mutual Insurance. Liberty Mutual customizes your coverage so you only pay for what you need. Coming up, we'll get your responses to how the Jags and Lions might fare this season and how long Dan Campbell is for Detroit. Plus, Kyrie and some interesting takes from some of the best minds in sports. It's coming up next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. That's right, we're storming towards training camp. And that storming begins with the most easily collapsible and ripe for defeat opponents, which is the Jags of the Lions, who finished at the dead bottom of the league last year. So we're starting at the bottom, and we're going to move up from there. It's Spain and Fitz, solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Two a days today, we talked a bunch about the Jags and the Lions. What needs to get better in order for them to see improvement? What Doug Peterson might be able to do with Trevor Lawrence and uh, uh, healthy Etienne. Uh, and on the Lions side, is Dan Campbell and the, and the influence he has on his team going to go beyond just good culture and instead actually make for a winning culture? We asked you, the good folks on Twitter, and all the other folks on Twitter, uh, how many regular season wins do you think the Jaguars are going to put up this season? 57.8% said 0 to 4 wins. 39.7% said 5 to 8 wins. And 2.5% who probably work for the Jaguars or are related to Doug Peterson or Trevor Lawrence said 8 plus wins. We asked the same question of the Lions. I made it slightly worse. I have a little less faith, only because of uh, Trevor Lawrence. I gave I gave the uh, I gave the Jags one extra win. But for the Lions, zero to three, eighteen point six percent, four to six, fifty nine point four percent, seven to nine wins, nineteen point six, and ten plus wins, two point four percent. I also asked about Dan Campbell's future, and some people who weren't listening to the show but saw the question on Twitter were a little confused, and I said, how many more years do you think he'll be head coach in Detroit? They said he seems like he got the guys playing hard for him, and, you know, he's inspiring. Why would you ask this? And, I mean, again, 25th in scoring, 31st in, uh, in, in defense, and, you know, a 3-13-1 record. You're, you're going to have some questions, no matter how much people like your folksy sayings, not to mention it's been a coaching carousel, a turnstile there in recent years. So that's why I asked. Uh, some of you are a little optimistic. Only 24.1% said he won't finish this upcoming season. 43.9% said he'll coach through the end of the 23-24 season. And 321 said he'll coach for three-plus more years in Detroit. So many questions about golf and whether they can improve with him at quarterback and whether Dan Campbell is the man to create a true culture change for a longtime losing squad. And in the case of the Jaguars, can they erase the stain of Urban Meyer, get past the mistakes and the reputation of Trent Baalke, and make good on a real great quarterback and who appears to be a great dude in Trevor Lawrence? We'll find out. Those are two-a-days, starting with those two teams. It's Spain fits solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Started the show talking a bit about Kyrie, and I wanted to get back to that because two people whose opinions I, I value and find very interesting in Dragonfly Jones and Dan Levitard tweeted and wrote about Kyrie and seemed to have sympathy for the way he's been treated. And 
in many ways, I agree. I don't agree with what Dragonfly Jones said about Joe Sy and his statement about the kinds of players he'd want on his team. This is what he wrote. Uh, this is a, a tweet. Sai is exhibit A of how billionaires don't get into sports ownership to foster relationships with players and field competitive teams. They get into ownership to impress other rich people. And Sai determined Kyrie had to pay for his sins over a stipulation that no longer exists of embarrassing him to other rich people last season. And it cost Sai everything. But probably not to him. He got some attaboys from the billionaires, so he probably views this as a win. Kyrie not getting vaccinated to the peril of all the human beings around him suffering through a years plus long pandemic that continues to rage uh, and not being able to play because of that is not Joe Sy trying to impress people. Joe Sy being frustrated at Kyrie not being available even before the pandemic for reasons or before the uh, vaccinations, I should say, for reasons that he didn't think he needed to explain or tell his team just disappeared. Uh, to me, again, you're caping for a guy who made very clear that he didn't care about the contract he signed, the teammates he played for, the coach he played under, the team whose uniform he wore. You can argue on behalf of Kyrie that some of the criticisms go beyond what's proportionate to his sins, but blaming Joe Sy for wanting a player who's getting millions and millions of dollars and whose ability to suit up completely affects whether you get wins or losses, wanting that person to be consistent and care and show up, that's not a big ask, in my opinion. I'm not surprised he'd rather move on and not give him a big, gigantic deal if he didn't care to show up in a place that he chose and then recruited people to with the coach that he asked for. Then why would you believe that now at this point, after all that they've been through, he's going to prioritize it now? It just it was a very strange take. And then Dan Levitard wrote on his Substack about Kyrie getting into a war of words with Stephen A. Smith and and the way Stephen A. speaks to him, and also his fight with a sports blog that's selling shirts that have his face alongside Putin and ISIS and Kim Jong-un. Here's a little bit of what Dan wrote about sports fans and our treatment of athletes. We feel more entitled to our bad behavior than Irving is to his, even though his skill level is vastly more rare than our passion. Our need for content will always usurp his need for content pronounced like happiness. This is not meant as a defense of Kyrie, by the way, his behavior in nuking three consecutive successful blueprints is not quite defensible in what we've made of this workplace, but I'd like to examine his request since it's about the only time we've heard his voice amid this cacophony of angry noise he birthed. He's requesting we think differently about how we treat people like him and our response is to mock and tell him to F all the way off. He's trying to sage sports of some of its spiritual impurities and we laugh maniacally in his face and tell him that he's the crazy one, but he isn't exactly wrong that it's odd for a 50 plus year old adult to yell and scream for days on television about where someone a quarter century as junior dribbles a basketball. He isn't exactly wrong that we probably shouldn't be profiting by putting his name near Putin's. In a vacuum, he's probably closer to right in objecting than we are in profiting. So I agree with that. I, I, I agree that the scales of what we accept in the sports world and the proportion to which people will lose their minds over something and have zero perspective over its value in terms of larger issues, fair. But he goes on to say that Kyrie continues to rake in the money even when he doesn't show up. And can those criticizing him say the same? And I think that's such a terrible metric for deciding whether someone is in the right. And I also think it doesn't have to be so black and white. We can argue that people's cruelty toward Kyrie and their willingness to make him a monolith for everything that's wrong is bad. But we also should be able to carry in the context that he didn't show up for his teammates and his job and his work. 
and that he didn't show up for humanity in the sense of getting vaccinated and protecting others. So he's deserving of some criticism, just maybe not quite as much as we're giving him. I would recommend reading Levitard's whole piece. It's good, even though I don't agree with all of it. Levitard's going to be on Friday and Fitzsimmons with Kyrie next. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.